So as most of you know, they have been here. We are eight weeks away from the launch of our new book. And I won't go into a long explanation about that for those of you that don't know. Or if you want to know more, please ask me. I want to tell you about it. We just don't have the time right now. But we're eight, eight weeks away from the launch of our book with Good Catch Publishing. And so starting today and the next seven weeks that follow, right up until the launch of that book, we're going to be showing you a short video to build up um, toward that day when Doug Heseltine, one of the uh, members of the team at Good Catch Publishing, will be here flying in from Oregon to speak to us that day as we launch that book. As we continue to pray and seek God and ask Him for direction for this church, which we do constantly, the one area that we've really felt, one of two areas that we've really felt He was showing us where we've been deficient since we started the church was in taking the gospel outside of these walls into our city. <clears throat> I think we've been strong in equipping and training and teaching. I think we've been strong in building a faith community that genuinely cares for one another and helps one another. I think we've done very well at caring for those who are hurting and come in and they're new to our family by embracing them and helping them. In fact, you're doing a wonderful job in so many ways, and it's a great privilege to be a part of it, and yet there's so much more to be done. And taking the gospel out into our city is one of those next steps for us in this ministry where there needs to be a lot of focus and effort and commitment. And so there are several steps that we're taking. Uh, there are new ministries that we're gearing up for uh, that we'll be launching around the new year. And as we're praying about all of this, we were introduced to Good Catch Publishing. And there's absolutely no question in my mind that it was the Holy Spirit guiding us to that moment. All right? I had no intention of going to the conference where Darren Lindley uh, from the video Good Catch and Haley, our project manager who comes to this church now, lives in town, and, and others from Good Catch Publishing, they were all there. I had never heard of Good Catch Publishing, but a friend invited me, and so I went. And here we are just a few months later, preparing to release our first book in an outreach program that is literally the most creative and compelling form of evangelistic outreach that I've ever heard of in 20 years of church ministry. Uh, the book is close to being finished. I can tell you that one thing we realized right away after receiving the surveys was that we have enough amazing testimonies in this church to do about three or four books. And in fact, uh, we'll see where we end up after the distribution of this first book, but we may well turn around after the first year of this book circulation and do another book with Good Catch. So if your story didn't get selected for this project, I can tell you with all honesty, it had nothing to do with it not measuring up to the standard uh, for making it into the book. The selection process literally came down to Good Catch wanting a varied assortment of the types of stories that ended up in the book to potentially reach people from all different backgrounds. So just know, as I've learned from reading your testimonies, that your story may well end up in a book before it's all said and done, okay? And so for the time being, we're going to be ramping up more and more as we get closer uh, to our December 7th launch date to get prepared to get behind the release of this book. And as we've mentioned before, there's a lot that goes along with the launch of it. We're going to have teams of people walking uh, through and praying for the people in those neighborhoods where the books are being directly mailed. We're going to financially sponsor as many books as we possibly can, knowing that every book 
that you sponsor will reach an average, statistically, an average of three homes with a crystal clear presentation of the gospel where people are engaged, enthralled into an average of a 45-minute story seven times over. There's seven testimonies. It takes about 45 minutes to read each one. I can tell you, if you haven't picked one up yet from some of the other churches that we've looked at, you can't put them down. And so you get up to three families engaged with the gospel for every book that you sponsor. We're going to have handout copies of the book that are available for you to take and leave at the office or your favorite coffee shop in the waiting room at the dentist office, right? Your neighbor's house, wherever the Holy Spirit leads you to drop a copy of the book. And because they're distributed monthly uh, over the course of a year, this is going to be our primary evangelism focus for 2015. Although we are developing other outreach ministries as well. But I've been talking to other pastors who have done this same book project with Good Catch Publishing. And they're telling me, Rob, uh, you can expect not only your church to grow from this, but you can expect to hear testimony after testimony over the months of people who are coming to Christ because of this book. Because of your testimonies. In fact, some people, it'll get passed around from home to home. And then somebody will turn around and sell it in a yard sale or put it on eBay or stick it out on Amazon. And I've had pastors say, look, I'm in Oregon and I got a call from a guy in New Mexico who bought the book for a dollar on eBay or something. And he gave his heart to the Lord. And he called the church and wanted to tell us that. It's incredible. So really excited. I wholeheartedly believe that God is in this. So we need to be, we need to be in it too. Okay. And when you step back and look at the big picture, this book project is just one aspect. It's one part of the overall ministry of making disciples through Upcountry Church. This is very much a part of the command that Jesus gave us to make disciples. That great commission for the church. And of course, this is all a part of what we've been talking about in our sermon series that we've been working through, the Acts of the Apostles, as we work our way through the back book of Acts together, which we're continuing today, okay? We've reached the halfway point in our sermon series. There are 28 chapters in the book of Acts. Last week, we finished chapter 14. Today, we're going to be working our way through most of chapter 15 in a sermon entitled, The Party's Over. All right, and the reason I gave the message this title is because Chapter 15, which is widely referred to as the Jerusalem Council, is the first time we see the church as a whole gathering together to deal with a serious theological problem, a disagreement, a major doctrinal divide within the church. We saw, of course, Ananias and Sapphira back in chapter 5. They brought disunity and dishonesty into the church, but that was a very specific and a localized, if you will, event that was dealt with really swiftly and decisively by Peter. We've seen some other issues along the way as well, but this is the first time where we see all the church leaders, all the heavy hitters, the apostles, uh, the elders, and others coming together to work through an issue that could potentially split the church right down the middle. The early and that seemingly absolute unity and harmony that we saw in the body of Christ beginning in Acts chapter 2 and verses 42 through 47 specifically, that's now being challenged at the highest levels within the church. Okay, so the, the honeymoon period for the church is over. And the reality that the body of Christ is made up of fallible humans is highlighted here in chapter 15, which chronicles this event and the eventual outcome which in my opinion was actually a a good test, a good time of growth 
for the church. So let's turn there now. If you brought your Bibles and we'll put it up on the screen. We're going to work our way through uh, most of chapter 15. And just to set the scene, as we finished chapter 14 last week, Paul and Barnabas have just returned to the church in Syrian Antioch from their first missionary journey and reported to the church there all that God had done through them. And it was no small report. Okay, remember, they had to flee, uh, to flee Iconium after leading huge numbers of people to Christ and making disciples there. They had to escape to Lystra and Derbe upon the threat of stoning. In Lystra, the Lord uses Paul to heal a man crippled from birth, and then the crowds try and worship them for it. And then a group of Jews travels about 100 miles to hunt Paul down and stone him until they thought he was dead. And then they drag his lifeless body out of the city and they leave him there to rot. But Paul gets up and keeps on making disciples, even revisiting all the places that they'd passed through and been persecuted in before returning now to the church in Syrian Antioch. Paul and Barnabas had some stories to tell. They have seen miracles. They've been persecuted, protected supernaturally, saved, stoned nearly to death, chased out of town, worshipped, accepted, rejected, abandoned, and through it all, these masses of people, both Jew and Gentile, becoming disciples of Christ. This was a journey like the world had never seen before. And Paul and Barnabas are just getting started. But for now, it's a time of rest. A time to reflect and recharge before going back out again, or so they thought. And so here as we pick up the story, we see some of the result of Paul and Barnabas sharing testimonies about all that God had done through them. Okay, so let's read it together. Chapter 15, verse 1. But some men came down from Judea and were teaching the brothers, unless you're circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. And after Paul and Barnabas had no small dissension and debate with them, Paul and Barnabas and some of the others were appointed to go up to Jerusalem to the apostles and the elders about this question. So being sent, away on, uh, sent on their way by the church, they passed through both Phoenicia and Samaria, describing in detail the conversion of the Gentiles, and brought great joy to all the brothers. When they came to Jerusalem, they were welcomed by the church and the apostles and the elders, and they declared all that God had done with them. But some believers who belonged to them, to the party of the Pharisees, rose up and said, it is necessary to circumcise them in order to keep the law of Moses. Okay? So Paul and Barnabas have just returned from Antioch on this incredible two-year journey where they saw and experienced far more than most Christians do in an entire lifetime. Remember, Paul led the proconsul on the island of Cyprus, the Roman ruler, to Christ. And that was, of course, only after the confrontation with this false prophet named Bar-Jesus, where Paul strikes the guy blind. They were run out of Pisidian Antioch. They were abandoned by John Mark, and not long after, discovered a plot to kill them. So they escaped to Lystra, Again, where God healed a man through Paul who was crippled from birth. They stone Paul. They drag him out of the city. He gets back up and they continue on making more disciples, many more, along with Barnabas until they arrive back at the church in Antioch. And all told, masses of people becoming Christians because of the determination of Paul and Barnabas and the power and effectiveness of the Holy Spirit working through them. If any one of us were to experience even one of these events in our lifetime, we would tell that story the rest of our lives, wouldn't we? 
because it would probably be the most remarkable thing that had ever happened to us, right? If you were to strike someone blind or pray for someone who couldn't walk their entire life and they were healed, if you went on a missions trip and you were pummeled with rocks until you almost died, but then you get back up and continue leading people to Christ, any one of these events would probably stand out as the greatest story of your life. And yet Paul and Barnabas have experienced all of this and much more in just two years. Obviously at this point, there could be absolutely no doubt in your mind, if you're Paul and Barnabas, that God is with you and you are doing His work, His will. And yet as soon as they begin with great joy to come back home and to recount all that God had done with them over these past two years. Can you imagine the joy and the excitement to share with your brothers and sisters what God was doing? Right as they begin to do that, some church people show up and try to invalidate their ministry. There were certain Jews in the church who came from a a Pharisaical background. They were converted Pharisees. They were very strict religious Jews who were accustomed to keeping not only the moral laws of God, which we're all, by the way, still bound to today as followers of Christ, but also the ceremonial laws of Moses given to Israel, which we're not bound to today, like circumcision and and kosher food laws and keeping and practicing various sacrifices and festivals, which were all signs of outward purity. But these Pharisaical believers, these church members, still believe that followers of Christ had to keep the ceremonial laws. And so even though uh, the only notable mention that they get in Scripture is the fact that they were complaining about Paul and Barnabas. You know, in other words, we don't read about them performing any miracles or making disciples of Christ or going on missionary journeys, and yet they find it perfectly acceptable to confront Paul and Barnabas to try and discredit their ministry. Even though, as we'll see uh, Peter argue later here, the Gentiles were experiencing genuinely the Holy Spirit coming upon them without being uh, circumcised or following the law of Moses. But still these Christians, and it says they were believers from the party of the Pharisees, were intent on arguing against the validity of the ministry of the apostles. Is it any wonder then? Verse 2 says, Paul and Barnabas had no small dissension and debate with them. Okay, in our language today, exaggeration has become a part of our routine discourse, and that's fine. Uh, so if we want to describe a big event or something really significant, we say things like, man, it was epic, right? It was amazing. It was phenomenal. And so we kind of overstate everything to make our point. And that's okay. It's a cultural thing. But it would be easy from that perspective, from our modern perspective, when we read that Paul and Barnabas had no small dissension and debate with them to kind of picture in our minds these guys sitting down for tea, you know, as they agree to disagree about their ministry. I'll never forget the first argument I ever saw Dave and Kathy have. You know, our friends from Cyprus, our British friends that come, and Dave has spoken here. They're the most polite people on the the planet Earth. And we were were out with them one night eating, and they had an argument. I've never heard two people tell each other off as friendly in such a polite way in my life. It seemed like the nicest conversation in the world, and they're just going back and forth. Oh, rubbish. You know, they have that perfect British accent. It's not quite the same as what we do. That's not what was happening here. This is what we would call an epic confrontation. The gloves were off. The claws were out. And these guys were laying into each other. In the original Greek language, it says there was great strife or insurrection between them. 
This was not a minor event. Okay, some of you uh, probably have been making disciples for many years now, maybe decades. Uh, some of you, maybe you're just in the place with your walk with Christ where you're feeling like you're ready. You're going through ministry training, you're getting involved, and I'm, I'm getting ready to begin making disciples. And maybe some of you have never made a disciple of Jesus Christ in your life. I don't know where you are today. But I can tell you this. When you begin to disciple other people, truly amazing things will, will happen over time. You'll see people give their hearts to Christ and then become different people, changed forever. There'll be times when someone will come to you and they'll say things like, man, you know, before yesterday, I looked at things this way or, or that way. And so I acted this you know, particular way in my own life because of the perspective I had. But then I heard you say this, or I saw you do that. Or I heard you talking to this person and you told them this, you fill in the blank. And it changed the way that I think about that particular part of my life. Or now my perspective is different and I'm living differently because of what you taught me or what I heard you say or what I saw you do. And the more you disciple others in your life, there will be times when you'll experience those kinds of moments. They're miracles when, when people's lives are changed forever because of what God did through you. And it's very humbling and it's also very validating when you're doing something you're living out your walk with Jesus in front of others and you're teaching them how to follow him. And then you see them make these significant life changes that move them closer to him. That is very validating, okay? Because you're seeing the fruit of the spirit that Paul talks about in Galatians. I'm not saying that's where we get our self-worth. That comes from Christ alone. I mean validating in the sense that we see the fruit of the spirit that Paul talks about in his letter to the Galatians, being produced in the lives of those people that you're discipling for Christ. In fact, I've wondered when I, when I read Paul's letter to the church in Galatia, if he had this, this epic confrontation that happened here in chapter 15, did he have that in mind when he was writing to the Galatian Christians? Because these Pharisaical believers were saying, you have to follow the ceremonial laws or your ministry doesn't count. But listen to what Paul writes in Galatians 5, 18 through 23. He says, if you're led by the spirit, you are not under the law. Now the works of the flesh are evident, sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. I warned you, I warned you as I warned you before that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. And the reason Paul says there is no law against the life that is lived according to the Spirit of God is because the law is fulfilled in those who live according to the Spirit. How do we know that? Because Paul explains as much in Romans 8, 3, 4. He says... God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do. By, end, by sending His own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, He condemned sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us. Who walk not according to the flesh, but how? According to the Spirit. Paul knew that every requirement for salvation... Every requirement for becoming a disciple of Jesus Christ was being met the moment those whom he was discipling were saved and filled with the Holy Spirit. 
pouring out of the lives of those same uncircumcised uh, Gentiles were the fruit of the Spirit. They were experiencing it firsthand, and that's, that's really hard to argue with. But that doesn't mean that people, even people in the church, won't try. They will try. They'll try to invalidate your ministry all the same. And I'm telling you that if you set your mind to making disciples, you'll experience miracles of God in people's lives. And there's nothing greater. And you will also experience opposition at times from outside and unfortunately even sometimes from within the church. But look, there has never been, nor will there ever be, a shortage of people who want you to meet their own set of requirements and rules for making disciples of Christ before they'll accept your ministry as valid. And in all of the years of ministry, I can say with consistency, those uh, who I've personally experienced who seem unwilling to extend grace to others accept, uh, and accept that what God has done in their life is valid are typically uh, angry and judgmental people. And the reason they can't extend grace to others is usually because they can't accept grace for themselves. They're unwilling to fathom the depth of God's love for themselves that washes over all of their shortcomings and all of their imperfections. And so they're convinced that they must try to earn God's unmerited favor. They have to try to earn God's amazing grace, which is impossible. And it only frustrates those who try, and yet they continue trying. And they insist that everyone around them try as well. Well, I got news for you. We can never try hard enough because there is no way to earn the free gift of grace. And so we end up with this entire element in the church, unfortunately, that is constantly frustrated by their own unwillingness to accept the free gift of grace and their inability to work hard enough to deserve it, which is then often projected onto everyone else as some kind of righteous anger when actually all that they're exuding is arrogance and pride. There's no amount of boxes that we can check off to satisfy the payment required for our own sin. I'm not talking about holy living. That's still, we need holiness. We need holy living, okay? I'm talking about earning salvation. We can't do it. All that we can do is fall at the feet of the only one that is worthy. The only one able to make that payment that we never could. And submit all that we are to him. And then allow his grace and forgiveness and love and righteousness to wash over us completely. That's not a hyper-grace doctrine. That is the doctrine of grace within Scripture. All we can do is accept the gift of grace. We can't earn it, okay? After that, the lifelong process of being a disciple, of living for Christ, requires very much, uh, much of us, okay? Different issue. If God is not enslaving us, to the law, why would we ever willingly choose to do that to ourselves? And so it makes sense that if you just had two years worth of the experiences that Paul and Barnabas just had, where God is performing miracle after miracle through you and throngs of people are coming to Christ and then some believers from the church come down and say, nope, no, sorry, all those people you led to Christ, they aren't actually Christians because you didn't check off this box right here. The law says that you have to be circumcised. So all that work that you just did for the past two years was for nothing. It's no wonder Paul and Barnabas were taking these guys to task. In fact, if, if you've ever seen Star Wars, 
you know, where the bad guy shoots the blue lightning out of his fingertips and zaps people. I kind of picture Paul doing that if that was me. You know, that's what I would do to them, you know, when they're, they're <laughs> he struck a guy blind. So I'm thinking, why not? You just zap them and be done with it. But apparently that's not how we're supposed to treat each other in the church. So almost incredibly to me, what happens instead, they end up back in Jerusalem at the mother church where this issue is now being considered and ultimately we'll see resolved by the the church leadership. This is another part of the story worth highlighting because what happens fairly frequently in churches today when there's an argument about some ministry or testimony or something that's happening in the church, many times after the big heated exchange takes place, someone packs their bags and leaves. But these guys take the argument to the church, to the church leadership specifically, and allow themselves to be submitted to the covering of the church, which is so important because it keeps us accountable, it keeps us honest, and it keeps us in our ministry heading in the right direction. And so at this point in our story, what we see what could be considered as the first church business meeting, if you will, the first great church council. And oh boy, <laughs> have you ever been in a church business meeting that was contentious. I certainly have. Those can be very stressful and challenging, but sometimes they're necessary to keep everyone on the same page. Our last church before this one, we were in Alaska. I've told many of you know the story. We we went there. I was hired as the worship pastor, and so I was doing the music ministry full-time. It was a large church and a large staff, and after the first two years, all of the other pastors left. It wasn't a, a, a big terrible thing. It, was, it, was, it just happened to be God was moving them to other ministries. It was all good, but they all left in a very short period of time. And I ended up leading that church. But before then, in between, there was a few weeks where the, the board, who had no idea that I could preach because I'd just been doing music, so they went and hired an interim pastor. He was a retired minister that lived in the city, but didn't go to our church. Wonderful man. And they asked him to come in and become the, the interim pastor. And he said, okay. And it just so happened that was the time of year when we were supposed to have our annual business meeting. And so they called him into a meeting and they said, we've got to prep you for this business meeting because the whole church turns out when you have church business meetings and they they go through everything from finances to ministries to decisions. and, And so it's all out. So there's nothing hidden and everything's out in the open. And that's the way that church at least did that. And so great. But this guy had a huge learning curve because he didn't go to our church. And so there was a tremendous amount he had to be caught up on before this meeting. Well, I'd been there for years now and was intimately familiar with everything in the church. So I went to the board several times and said, hey, fellas, do you want me to sit in on the meeting and just be available? I understand that the pastor here is going to lead the business meeting and that's cool. But if I can be of a help. And they said, no, Pastor Rob, it's great. Thank you. You know, we got it covered. And I tried several times and they said no. And that was fine. So the day comes, we have the business meeting and the whole church is there. And because all the pastors had just left, even though it really was a healthy thing, anytime a whole staff of pastors leaves a church, there are going to be questions. And there are people that don't necessarily know what happened and understand. And so there was a lot of tenseness there and some frustrated people that wanted to know why all these guys left. So there were some people who were kind of locked and loaded, if you know what I mean. They were ready to fire their guns at the business meeting. And I walk in and I sit down with the congregation with everybody else and and our interim pastor gets up and they open with a prayer. They say a few things and he said, now we're going to open up for some questions, you know, about what's, what's happening at the church and we'll address those. And someone raised their hand and walked up to the mic 
and asked the first question. And the pastor looked at me and he said, Pastor Rob, can you come up here a minute? And I said, sure. So I walked up front and he whispered in my ear, I don't really know how to answer that question, do you? And I said, yeah. And so he hands me the mic and we talk through the question and it goes okay and we work through it. And I hand him the mic and I go back and sit down. Next question, person comes up and asks the question. He literally says to me, Pastor Rob, can you come up here, please? We went through the same exact thing and I hand him back the mic and he said, why don't you just stay up here? And I said, okay, this is a true story. Third question, he turns to me and he hands me the mic and I, I answer the question and then he puts his arm around me and he says, you know what? You're doing a great job. And he turns around and he doesn't just go sit down. He walks out of the building and he goes home. And I'm standing there with zero preparation in front of this church. And it's now I'm running the business meeting. So I survived the day. Fortunately, I lived to tell about it. Uh, it was quite interesting. And the truth is some of those churchwide meetings can be very difficult and suspenseful as was, was this one in Jerusalem that we're reading about, right? Let's jump back in our story now. Let's go to verse six and uh, pick up where we left off. It says the apostles and the elders were gathered together to consider this matter. And after there had been much debate, Peter stood up and said to them, Brothers, you know that in the early days God made a choice among you that by mouth the Gentiles should hear the word of the gospel and believe. And God, who knows the heart, bore witness to them by giving them the Holy Spirit just as he did to us. So Peter makes it really clear in this meeting that God was giving his Holy Spirit to these uncircumcised Gentiles in the same way that he was giving him to the Jewish believers. Let's continue with Peter at verse 9. And he made no distinction between us and them having cleansed their hearts by faith. And this sounds like a simple enough statement to us by Peter when he says that God cleansed their hearts by faith. But remember... He's talking to believers from the Pharisee party who are arguing for the old requirements of the ceremonial law to still be enforced in order to be considered clean by God. And what Peter says here flies directly in the face of that because under the old covenant, the followers of God were cleansed through rituals and ceremonies under the law. And Peter's saying something very different here. He says God has cleansed their hearts, but it was by faith which really goes to the very heart of the argument in this meeting. What is actually required for salvation? The Pharisees believers, uh, the Pharisee believers, they say, well, it's works. You still have to earn your salvation. Peter and the other apostles say, no, we're saved by grace through faith alone, which we also read later in uh, Ephesians 2, 8 and 9. So Peter, who seems to have a knack for getting right to the heart of any issue, as we've seen from him throughout his time with Jesus and now as an apostle, drives the point home. Verse 10, he says, Now therefore, why are you putting God to the test by placing a yoke on the neck of the disciples that neither our fathers nor we have been able to bear? But we believe that we will be saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus just as they will. And all the assembly fell silent. And they listened to Barnabas and Paul as they related what signs and wonders God had done through them among the Gentiles. Okay, so up to this point, these Pharisaical believers are questioning the validity of the apostles' ministry. And Peter here, using language very familiar to his Jewish audience, puts the ball right back in their court by asking them a question that they obviously have no good answer for. Why place a burden? He says a yoke, which is the, the word that Jewish rabbis use to describe the law, to refer to the law. 
He says, why put a yoke, a burden on these Gentiles that none of us or our fathers have been able to bear? And the assembly falls silent. And then as a buttress to Peter's argument, Paul and Barnabas get up and begin to share all that God was doing among the Gentiles. And then after all of the discourse, after all of the, uh, after all of the arguments and supporting stories are shared, something really noteworthy happens. James, who's considered the first among equals in the Jerusalem church, what we would refer to as the lead elder or senior pastor or uh, whatever you want to call him, he makes the final judgment on the matter, ruling elder. And based on the response that he gets, it's clear that his judgment was considered authoritative and sufficient for the church to then move forward in the calling before them to continue to make disciples of Jesus Christ. So let's keep reading at verse 13. It says, after they finished speaking, James replied, Brothers, listen to me. Simeon, it's another name for Peter, has related how God first visited the Gentiles to take from them a people for his name. And with this, the words of the prophets agree, just as it is written. After this, I will return and I will rebuild the tent of David that has fallen. I will rebuild its ruins and I will restore it, that the remnant of mankind may seek the Lord and all the Gentiles who are called by my name, says the Lord, who makes these things known from old. Therefore, my judgment is that we should not trouble those of the Gentiles who turn to God, but should write to them to abstain from the things polluted by idols and from sexual immorality and from what has been strangled and from blood. For from ancient generations, Moses has had in every city those who proclaim him, for he's read every Sabbath uh, in the synagogues. So James stands up and he makes his own argument in support of the ministry that's been happening with Peter and Paul and Barnabas and the others. And he carefully and very wisely quotes from the Old Testament and he alludes to several passages, Amos 9.11, uh, Jeremiah 12.15, chapter 17 of Jeremiah, verse 27, Isaiah 43.7, Jeremiah 14.9, Daniel 9.19. Okay, James, um, who by the way was very well known for his scrupulous keeping and teaching of the law in that time, which we know from the ancient writings of Josephus and his work, Antiquities, uh, from Eusebius and his work, Ecclesiastical History. They all talk about James and how he kept the law so rigidly. And yet James uses scripture here that these Pharisaical believers claim to live by to support not only ministry to the Gentiles, but also the very idea that God's chosen people are not just the Jews, but made up of Gentiles alike. And he makes the point that these Old Testament prophecies according, uh, uh, concerning the Gentiles that he's reading are now coming to pass through the ministry of the apostles, which these Jewish believers are trying to invalidate. And at the same time, he's not insensitive to the convictions of the other Jewish believers either. It's brilliant the way he does this, as his judgment here includes instructions to observe some of the ceremonial laws, the ones that won't exclude these new Gentile disciples from their own communities, their own Gentile communities. For them to keep all of the law of the Jews would have meant they couldn't live within their own communities. So in other words, James says, look, it's not required for the Gentiles to be circumcised in order for them to be true followers of Christ, but where they're able to follow the ceremonial laws, since they live in proximity to Jews in every city, they should, so as not to create an offense. And then he addresses the issue of sexual immorality, which was common among them, like it is among us today, because that is a moral law which applies to all people across all generations. And throughout his argument, James is using Scripture to support his assertions. And so just one more quick point to be made here. It's really important that we can back up 
any ministry that we're a part of with Scripture. Okay? In other words, if Scripture doesn't agree with whatever you're doing, then you probably shouldn't be doing it. Right? This is another reason it's so important that any ministry you're involved with is under the covering of the church as well, because it is in that context, the context of the fellowship, the eldership, and the other leaders in the church, that there should be agreement and support and validation for any ministry that you're a part of. And we should always be able to back that up with Scripture. And I've experienced more than once people who were unwilling to allow their ministry to be under the covering of a church. And when questioned about it, they typically become very defensive. And some have even left the church over it. And most of the time, at least in my own experience, those ministries have ceased to exist over time or they experience a major failure at some point and they have no support to recover from that failure because they refuse to be in fellowship with and under the covering of the church. And I can tell you that as a pastor, I don't allow any ministry that isn't backed up by a proven church organization to come here and do anything. And I know that I've been harping on this point of late, but it's, it's pertinent to these chapters that we've been working through. All ministry that was ordained by the Holy Spirit in the New Testament was carried out in the context and under the authority of the organized church. And this Jerusalem council that we're reading about today is an excellent example of why that's so important. Okay? And then as we finish our text for this morning, and we'll finish up here, we see the church functioning as it should, even when there's conflict. So let's read from verse uh, 22. Then it seemed good to the apostles and the elders with the whole church to choose men from among them and send them to Antioch with Paul and Barnabas. They sent Judas called Barsabbas and Silas, leading men among the brothers with the following letter. The brothers, both the apostles and elders, to the brothers who are of the Gentiles in Antioch and Syria and Cilicia, greetings. Since we have heard that some persons have gone out from us and troubled you with words unsettling to your minds, although we gave them no instructions. Okay? Again, some of the Jewish church members were operating outside the covering of the authority of the church. And he makes that clear here. Verse 25, It has seemed good to us, having come to one accord, to choose men and send them to you, with our beloved Barnabas and Paul, men who have risked their lives for the sake of our Lord Jesus Christ. We've therefore sent Judas and Silas, who themselves will tell you the same things by word of mouth. For it has seemed good to the Holy Spirit, that's key, and to us, to lay you on you no greater burden than these requirements, that you abstain from what has been sacrificed to idols and from blood, and from what has been strangled and from sexual immorality. If you keep yourselves from these, you will do well. Farewell. And so when they were sent off, they went down to Antioch and having gathered the congregation together, they delivered the letter. And when they had read it, they rejoiced because of its encouragement. And Judas and Silas, who were themselves prophets, encouraged and strengthened the brothers with many words. And after they had spent some time, they were sent off in peace by the brothers to those who had sent them. But Paul and Barnabas remained in Antioch, teaching and preaching the word of the Lord with many others also. Okay? This is a great example of believers coming together and resolving conflict within the body under the leadership and the covering of the local church. And what did not happen as a result is as significant as what did happen. What we don't see here is the Jewish believers who brought the original complaint after their assertions were refuted and ultimately rejected. We don't see them packing up their stuff and moving two blocks away to form a new church under new guidelines and new doctrines. 
Verse 22 says it seemed good to the apostles and the elders with the whole church. Presumably that included these Jewish Christians in the church as well. To choose men from among them and send them to Antioch with Paul and Barnabas. And then we see all of the leaders including the great apostles Peter and Barnabas and Paul. These these great men of renown, right? Taking their marching orders from the elders of the church. In verse 30 and 31, it says they were sent off. They went down to Antioch. They gathered the congregation together. They delivered the letter. And when they read it, they rejoiced because of its encouragement. This is how the church is supposed to function. This is a happy ending. Next week, we're going to go even deeper into this idea of conflict resolution because the remaining verses in this chapter, which we'll save for next week, present a situation that isn't uh, quite as neat and tidy at the end. And it's also good for us to see that because this is real life and we all know, don't we, that not every problem in life comes to the conclusion that we anticipated or at least hoped for, right? Uh, sometimes life can really throw us a curveball. We'll get into that next week. But for now, looking at this portion of the story in Acts, we can take away some really useful principles about the church and our place in it. Okay, we need to pay attention to what these chapters are teaching us because this church, upcountry church, is growing. And we're instituting this larger leadership structure and we're forming and implementing new ministry teams and we're training leaders to serve on these teams in different capacities. And then soon we're going to be adding more ministry teams, branching out even further. It's all very exciting. And I can tell you that the more we grow and the more we expand the ministry here, the greater the potential for conflict. Because we're human. We don't always get everything right. And that's okay. Conflict isn't avoidable always. Sometimes it is, it's even necessary to bringing course corrections as we travel on this journey of faith and ministry together. There are going to be times when you may not be happy about the way that someone is leading or about a decision that's been made about a ministry or something someone's doing in their team specifically with the ministry that you're involved in because it's close to your heart and it should be. And we're looking ahead today to those times in the future when we will certainly have to walk through uh, questions and decisions together. But I want to encourage you when those times come, let's look back to this meeting in the Jerusalem church and use this as a guide for how we proceed. If an issue can't be resolved simply and expeditiously between the parties in disagreement, we bring that before the leadership of the church and we pray over that and we weigh the issue against scripture and we discuss all sides of it just as they did here in chapter 15. And when there's a consensus reached among the leadership under the guidance of the Holy Spirit, we thank God for wisdom and guidance on that matter and we joyfully carry on with the work that he's assigned us to. Of course, when I say it like that, it sounds really simple, doesn't it? (laughs) Sometimes not everything is so simple, I know. And again, we'll get into that more next week. It's a great example of when it's not that easy. But for now, we can look to this meeting at Jerusalem as a standard for dealing with conflict within the church appropriately. We don't take matters into our own hands. We don't storm out and look for another church that we uh, might agree with us. We don't go solo with our ministry and rebel against the church, which is God's primary agent for ministry in, in the scriptures. We come together. We work toward a solution. We respect the guidance of the Spirit of God, the truth of the scriptures, and the covering of the church leadership until a decision is made on how to move forward. And we can see in our text today when we do that, We maintain a unity in the body of Christ, which scripture makes clear as a top priority for the church. 
Okay, and we don't have time. Uh, I was going to read some. We don't have time to go through Matthew 18 today, but that's another example of the same principles being taught by Jesus himself, where he outlines the steps for dealing with conflict within the church. The circumstances are different, but the principles are the same. He teaches us to try and resolve a conflict with the offending party first, uh, which we saw with Paul and Barnabas here in their argument with the Jewish Christians. And then if that doesn't work, you bring it before others and ultimately to the church for a resolution. All right. So the point is, we're all in this together. And God has a purpose for each one of us, every single one of you in this new church. And that purpose is ultimately, we know, to make disciples of Christ. And he's going to use us, though, in many different and creative ways to accomplish that end. And the greater the effectiveness of this church in making disciples, the more we grow, the more lives that we affect for Christ, we can expect the more the enemy is going to come against us. Because as the Holy Spirit becomes more active and effective in this church, the greater threat that we become to his kingdom, the kingdom of our enemy. And the most effective way that he works against the body of Christ, bar none, is by driving a wedge of disunity between us. He does it in the church. He does it in marriages. He does it in families. He does it in friendships. He does it in relationships all the time. And so I just want to caution all of us today as we move forward together in this church and in our life, let's keep making disciples the goal. Unity in the spirit, our priority and proceeding according to his word, our standard. This is how Paul and the other apostles lived and ministered. Making disciples was their constant goal. They kept unity in the spirit among them, a priority and they moved forward according to his word. And of course, it was all done to great effect for the kingdom of God. Okay, and I know beyond the shadow of a doubt that he wants to accomplish much through us and through this church. And it's, it's going to require every one of us to stay focused and committed on him and to each other and to these principles. Because the moment we allow our egos and our own desires and our own plans to take priority over the unity of the church that we have now, that's the moment we lose. Jesus summed it up best in John 13, 35, when he said, By this, all people will know that you are my disciples, if you have love for one another. Let's keep that at the top of our list of priorities, and everything else can exist somewhere below that, okay? Let's pray. 